In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I've received several questions concerning the details of how baptism was administered among particular Baptists in the 17th century. I've decided to answer by giving an overview of the mechanics of baptism as ordinarily practiced. I'll do this under eight short headings. First, the proper subjects of baptism. 17th century Baptists believed that the only scripturally valid subjects of baptism were visible saints of adult age. By visible saint, they meant that the person had to be a disciple, that is, have a credible profession of faith and life. They had to adequately confess the truths of Scripture rooted in a conversion, and out of that, display holiness in life. The one being baptized could be male or female, but had to be an adult of legal age. This was because baptism was considered a covenant ceremony that required the person to commit to God and the local church by making vows. The fact that those being baptized were not infants was surely one of the most visible differences between baptism as practiced in Baptist churches and the state church. Well, secondly, the manner or mode of baptism. When the first churches of the baptized way were established in the 1630s or early 1640s, the ordinance was administered by pouring water or possibly by other methods, such as wiping the face with water. But quickly the churches became convinced 
that the only biblical way was by immersion in water. Water was the necessary element used in the ordinance. Other baptisms, such as spirit baptism, didn't replace water baptism. And the baptizand was to be dipped or plunged under the water, not sprinkled or poured with it. The early Baptists understood baptism to be immersion. So they didn't believe in or practice various so-called modes of baptism, and I don't recall ever reading that kind of language from this period. For them, since the word baptize meant to submerge, they did not accept other modes or manners of baptism as pleasing to the church's lawgiver, Christ. Well, thirdly, the administer of baptism. One significant difference between Jewish washings and Christian baptism was that the Christian ritual had an administrator. Jewish washings were self-administered, but Christian dipping was administered to a person by another. In the First London Confession, this administer could be any Christian disciple. That confession specifically states that the one dispensing baptism is, quote, nowhere tied to a particular church office or person extraordinarily sent. The person performing the baptism was to be a disciple, quote, able to preach the gospel. But as the century progressed, the churches generally changed their thinking about this, so that in the Second London Confession, this holy appointment was, quote, to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called, according to the commission of Christ. While this phraseology leaves room for various understandings, it does clearly claim that Christ appointed qualified administrators. This can scarcely be anyone else than a church's elders, but perhaps it was written this way so that in special circumstances, such as lacking a pastor, or one physically unable to administer it, baptism could still be done. There are several instances of churches selecting men to act as baptismal administrators since their pastor was either too old or infirm to perform it. At other times, an outside pastor was called to the duty of baptizing if the pastor had no church or perhaps was away as in prison. It was not considered appropriate for men to baptize themselves. There are rare instances of this, usually without any explanation as to why the person felt it necessary to do so. For example, Francis Bampfield, the Seventh-day Particular Baptist, after being convinced of the necessity of immersion, dipped himself and then another. I suspect in his and others' minds, coming out of the state church, it was difficult to consider a layman's baptism of a pastor to be valid. Well, fourth, the formula for baptism. Disciples were baptized using the Trinitarian formula found in Matthew 28. I'm not aware of any historical instances where the words used were different from this. There are positive statements of using it, such as at the baptism of Sister Murray at Broadmead, Bristol in 1672. The church records state that she was baptized, quote, into the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. 
Baptists were staunch Protestants, and they were used to this formulation, and they tended to scrupulously follow the plain instructions of Christ for the ordinances, including his command in the Great Commission for baptism. And so in the 1689 Confession, it states that the party should be baptized, quote, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Location and Time of Baptism Immersions were usually performed in a nearby river or lake. Because they didn't believe that sprinkling or pouring was a proper baptism, they needed enough water to dip a person. In Bristol, this was the river Avon at a place called Baptist Mills. The Sister Murray just mentioned was, quote, baptized in the river as all others are, end quote. John Bunyan was baptized in the River Ouse in Bedford. Generally, churches needed to find something like a farmer's pond or a large enough stream. This is because indoor baptistries were almost never found in Baptist churches until the end of the next century. And that meant that all baptisms were public, at least to a degree. Sometimes this was safe, but not always, so the baptisms would be done in the evening or at times when they wouldn't easily be noticed. Using a pond on private land was useful in this regard as well. Baptisms were generally done throughout the year, regardless of weather, unless especially severe. Again, using the example of Sister Murray, she was baptized the 5th of January, 1671, when the temperatures in Bristol average in the 40s. The effects of baptism. Now, the main effects of baptism were being accepted as a true follower of Christ and a church member. All of the benefits of being joined to the body of Christ through baptism were then enjoyed, the main one being, of course, fellowship at the communion table. Baptists during this time were careful not to claim that unbaptized disciples were not true Christians. As the First London Confession states, quote, A true believer unbaptized is in a state of salvation and shall certainly be saved. Yet they also taught that, quote, Every believer ought to desire baptism and to yield himself to be baptized according to the rule of Christ in his word. Seventh, the names of baptism. Now, by the phrase names of baptism, I'm referring to the words ordinance and sacrament. Both terms were freely used to describe baptism throughout the century. Baptism was defined as, quote, an ordinance of the New Testament given by Christ in the First London Confession. The use of this term ordinance was meant to exalt Christ as the only head and lawgiver of the church. The particular Baptists denied that mere men had the right to ordain or make binding these ordinances for the church. Like the Scottish Covenanters of the same period, they believed strongly and practically in the crown rights of Jesus Christ. The word sacrament was also commonly used to describe baptism. In Hercules Collins's Orthodox Catechism, the title of the section dealing with baptism and the Lord's Supper is, quote, of the sacraments. William Kiffin uses it repeatedly in his treatise on communion. He called baptism the sacramental door 
and the gate of sacraments, since it opened the way to church membership and the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Well, finally, the grace of baptism. By this phrase, I'm referring to the question of whether baptism functioned as a sign and seal of grace in the minds of men during this time. Or put more broadly, is baptism a mere testimony or is grace conferred when faith, in faith it is properly submitted to? Sign and seal was a common bit of Protestant language, and it's found in the Westminster Confession and Savoy Declaration. But it was partially left out of the Second Baptist Confession. Baptism is called a sign in chapter 29, but no mention, one way or the other, about it being a seal is given. This is almost certainly because different pastors and churches held different views, and so to maximize who could sign the confession, this topic was left off. Probably most Baptists of the day believed baptism, like the supper, to be a sign and seal of grace. That is, it not only pictured grace, but conveyed it through faith. Some believed grace was conferred, but were not necessarily comfortable with the use of the word seal. The first London Confession said it this general way, where this obedience is in faith performed, there Christ makes this his ordinance, a means of unspeakable benefit to the believing soul. But Hercules Collins plainly taught in an Orthodox Catechism, question 65, that baptism is, quote, a sacred sign and seal. And William Kiffin declares, as the supper is a spiritual participation of the body and blood of Christ by faith, and so is a means of salvation, so baptism signs and seals our salvation to us. Baptism seals to invisible union with Christ. Well, from this short summary, I hope we will all be humbled at how much we have to learn about the practice of baptism. May the head of the church teach us his ordinances. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.